Well, that last song that we uh, we just sang is uh, so it says right there in your insert is is based on John 15 verse 13. I want to read that for you. It says this: Greater love has no one than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. You know that's what Jesus did in this earthly life. He laid down his life for his friends. He willingly chose to die upon the cross in the place of those who would believe in Him. If you believe in Him today, you are one of His friends and you are one of those for which He laid down His, his life. And really, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the demonstration of His love for us. He gave the greatest gift, the most precious price was His, his very life. In fact, that gift is so precious to us that that's the reason really we gather Sunday in and Sunday out is because of Christ gave Himself for us. I want to read for you, though, the, the verse previous to that. But it comes in a context here, John chapter 15. Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. It's really an amazing thing when you think about it, that Christ says, just as I have loved you, so also is my commandment to you that you love one another. The life of Jesus is really our model of love that we are called to imitate. We are called to give ourselves completely to others. And in fact, even this includes the cross. His sacrifice on the cross is our model of how a Christian ought to love another believer in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. That He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Right? The idea is simple. Right? Christ died for us so that we ought to live in a new way. Right? The new way is we don't live for ourselves, rather we live for God. And we demonstrate this by having the same type of sacrificial love towards others that Christ Jesus had for us. In our text this morning in Philemon, we're going to see an example of one who gave himself in sacrificial love to another. So if you're not there already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philemon. We've been here the past five weeks or so. I think this is my last message on Philemon. I overviewed it the first week. And then we've you know, not necessarily gone through verse by verse through everything because I felt like we've addressed everything. I, I've really just gone through and picked different portions to see what kind of lessons they have for us today. And our, our lesson this morning is going to come from verses 16 through 19. And it really is the example of Paul putting his life on the line and loving others as Christ Jesus loved. And in fact, in my outline this morning, I want to merely show you four ways in which Paul gave himself for the life of Onesimus. Um, my, my sermon this morning is entitled, Pictures of the Cross, because as I show you Paul's commitment to Onesimus, what's amazing here is that it parallels Christ's commitment to us and everything that Christ has done for us and giving himself for us. It's in this text, you can take these different subjects. There are three players in here. There's, there's Paul who wrote the letter. There's Philemon to whom he wrote it. And it's all about this man named Onesimus. And you can take each of these people and realize that they, they do illustrate each of us. Onesimus is like all of us. If you think about it, he was born a slave. We too are born slaves of sin. That's what Romans 6.20 says. You were slaves of sin. Onesimus became a transgressor. He ran away from his master, fled from God, possibly stealing money and possessions. And we too have become transgressors. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can presume that Onesimus didn't have the means to repay Philemon. He's a slave ran away and the price of a runaway slave is, is pretty high. And Onesimus didn't have that, that price, the means to repay. And we too don't have the means to repay God. Our only resource within ourselves is try to work it off. And yet the Bible is clear that by the works of the flesh, no one will be justified in his sight. We're just like Philemon in that sense. And, and also we're like Onesimus in the sense that um, he was destined to death. That was a typical punishment for a runaway slave. 
And we too are deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. We deserve to die for our sins. Onesimus is like us. In fact, Luther summed up the application well, saying that we are the Lord's Onesimi. That's plural for Onesimus, Onesimus, right? That's all of us. We are the Lord's Onesimi. We stand before God like Onesimus stood before Philemon. You think about it, Philemon in some sense pictures God. He's the master over Onesimus. He owned him. Philemon is the one whom Onesimus wronged in running away. His sin was against him. Philemon has the authority to inflict the death sentence upon Onesimus, and he's the one that holds the key to forgiveness and reconciliation, just like God. God has the authority to condemn us in our sins. And yet also in the the wondrous mystery of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, He also holds the key to reconciliation through faith in Christ. Now, the third player in this whole epistle is, is Paul. And Paul illustrates for us the life of Jesus. He's, think about what he's doing. He's pleading Philemon for another. And that's what Jesus does. He's our advocate. He pleads the Father for us. Paul gives his own life to Philemon as surety for the debts, that the debts will be paid. And so, likewise, that's what Christ Jesus did for us as well. And so this morning, we're going to see Paul pleading Philemon for the life of Onesimus in the same way that Christ pleads God the Father for our lives as well. In my message this morning, I want to pick up these similarities and use them to press home the realities of our salvation. Now, if you're you're tracking what what I'm saying, I'm saying that, you know, this morning I'm preaching allegory. Now, that's a a bad taboo word. Um, like a secret meaning. I'm not preaching a secret meaning. Okay, it's not the way I normally preach. Okay, but even as Luther saw all of us as the Lord's anesimi, and even as many other theologians have pointed out the parallels in the redemption, I'm going to use my message today somewhat artistic, somewhat devotional. You might call it allegorical. I trust you can forgive me because this is not my normal message, but it is and a great model. It's in John chapter 15 of of Paul modeling the love of Christ. And we ought to do that as well. So I I trust you'll you'll forgive me of that today. I trust it'll be encouraging your heart because it's going to focus upon what God has accomplished in Christ for our salvation. Well, let's consider my first point in verse 17. Substitution is verse 17. Substitution. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Here's Paul telling Philemon, when Onesimus returns to you, consider it to be me who's returning to you. I know full well Onesimus has done you wrong, Philemon, and I'm not denying the wrong you've done. But listen, you know what? I've done you no wrong. And I know that if I would return to you, you would accept me. And Onesimus is so dear to me that I'm asking you, Philemon, please accept Onesimus in the same way that you would accept me. That's what Paul is saying. Substitution right there. If you would regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. It's really the picture of what Christ Jesus has done for those who believe in him. Jesus pleads before the Father. He says, Father, this is one of my loved ones. I know that he has wronged you in as many sins that he has done. I know that in many ways his sin has come before you. It's odious and stenchful and your wrath is against Him. I'm not denying the wrong He's done, but I'm making a plea to you. Oh, Father, I know that You accept me into Your presence. He's one of my loved ones. And so when He comes into Your presence, I plead with You, Father, that You would accept Him as You would accept me. Because the sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. In the cross of Christ, Jesus became our substitute. During our time of communion last Sunday, I elaborated on 2 Corinthians 5.21 about God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that speaks about how He was our substitute. Jesus bore the punishment that we deserved as our substitute. And as our substitute, 
we get the righteousness that He earned. The result is that God accepts us in Christ Jesus before the Father. It's often called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. When Jesus died upon the cross, it was for our sins. He died in our place. That concept, I'm telling you, is all over the Bible. Have your eyes open to it and you'll see it. Isaiah 53, prophesying. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Jesus was pierced through as our substitute for our transgressions. Jesus, for our iniquities, was crushed. God's chastening fell upon Him for our well-being. Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him because He became our substitute. The New Testament's all over. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Christ died in the place of our sins. He was our substitute. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He took our place and He was the curse rather than us being the curse. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. As Jesus was dying upon the cross, He was bearing our sins as our substitute upon the cross. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is laying down His life for the brethren just like Christ Jesus laid His life down for us. Accept Him as you would me. Now, the verse I've read alluded to the punishment cast upon Jesus, but there's also the flip side of that. That 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that we are the righteousness in Him. There is also the substitute that we get as righteousness. Ultimately allowing us to stand before God. Philippians 3.9, Paul talks about how he stood before the Lord not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law is what he said, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here's the glories of the Gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ and we get a righteousness. Not from the law. We get a righteousness that comes as Jesus Christ becomes our substitute. He imputes to us His righteousness. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, because by faith we've received His righteousness. We get purity. We stand before Him. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. The idea here is that we were unjust and that Jesus died to take us and to bring us righteous into God's presence. So God accepts us as He accepts Jesus. It's a sacrifice of Jesus that is the means through which we're sanctified, Hebrews 10.10. It's in Christ Jesus that we've been made complete. And that's what substitution is. Christ took what we deserved. We receive what Christ earned. It's the foundation of the Gospel. It's the core of the Gospel. In fact, that's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, There are many theories of atonement, but I cannot see any atonement in any one except in this doctrine of substitution. This doctrine of substitution. And that's what Paul models us for us in this passage here. Accept Him as you would me. Let me be the substitute, is what he was saying. Well, let's look at our next picture of the cross. It comes in verse 18. I'm calling justification. Paul writes, But if He has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. We enter here now into the, the legal realm. Paul is telling Philemon here, Onesimus, if he has wronged you in any way, charge it to my account. If he stole your money when he ran away, you just tell me how much he stole and you put it on my tab. If he stole anything, calculate the value of everything that he stole, put it in my bank account. Charge it to me. Write up an invoice. Send it to me. If you spent any money searching for Onesimus, maybe you paid for somebody who would search for this runaway slave. Maybe you advertised somehow. Maybe you put up posters. Maybe in some kind of local news you spent some money. Whatever you spent on that, 
charge it to my account. If Onesimus caused you any stress, caused financial loss in your business, estimate your costs. Put them on a sheet, charge them to me. I want you to consider, Philemon, I want you to consider Onesimus free from any legal, financial, or personal obligation. Whatever way he's wronged you, take it off of him and put it on me. Let Onesimus go free. Regarding the prepayment of these things, you just talk with me about that. I'll help deal with that. So Paul is saying, he says, I don't want Onesimus to pay for the wrong that he has done. I want him to go free. You charge every wrong that he's done, charge it to me in my account. You know, my father is a physician. And um, at one point in his practice, he was taken to court, sued for malpractice. Ultimately found not guilty. So he wasn't guilty of malpractice, lest any of you come up to him and ask him some medical advice. I want you to know that he's okay. And uh, I remember in the courtroom, um, sitting and watching the proceeding of these people seeking to sue my dad for a lot of money, the accuser's lawyers stood up and said, um, I want to bring the charge of the settlement before uh, before the court. <clears throat> and there were a bunch of papers that this lawyer had in his hand. And, and uh, he said something like this, the numbers are wrong, the figures are wrong, the details are wrong, but it went something like this. Ambulance trip to the hospital, $500, and put a paper on there that details that. Paramedics bill, $450. Emergency room bill, $2,500. Doctor's fees, $400. Radiologist fees, $250. X-ray costs, $200. Surgery costs $13,000. Cost of stay in hospital $3,500. Follow-up office visits $5,000. Rehabilitation costs $10,500. Lawyer's fees $20,000. Insurance premium increase over lifetime, $50,000. Loss of work due to injury, $30,000. Loss of future work, $350,000. Pain and suffering over one's lifetime, half a million. Putting all those charges up. Putting them all up right there. And I remember as the... The lawyer did this. It took me 15 minutes detailing all these charges. And, you know, they, they were creative. They went, they found out any kind of <coughs> whatever they could look in there, putting the charges on the table to make dramatic effect for the jury. And, and I remember them at one of the breaks going in and talking with my father and, and his, um, his lawyers. He said, Boy, did they make a mistake. He said, They only went 15 minutes long said, boy, I've been in some malpractice suits where the lawyer went an hour to three hours just detailing all of the wrongs that have been done by this doctor upon this patient in the malpractice way. Because you want to leave the impression the patient was wrong. Well, that's what Paul was asking Philemon to do. Philemon, detail the charges. Let me know exactly how much they are. And then I want you to release... Onesimus, of all those, give me that stack of papers and I'll deal with that. You know, and that's exactly what God has done in our justification. If we, if we take this out of the realm of Paul and Onesimus and, and really then think about what, what Christ has done for us, it's exactly the same thing. All our sins mount a debt that we owe to God. Every time we sin, another piece of paper can be stacked on the judge's seat. And were a lawyer to come and prosecute you for your life? How long would it take? Fifteen minutes? You sinned this way, Your Honor. Sinned in this way. An hour? A day? A week? A month? The longer you live, the higher the stack gets. 
But Jesus Christ arises before the divine throne as a defense attorney. He's our advocate. He says, Father, if this person has wronged you in any way, charge it to my account. Take it off of his account. Let him go free. That's the glories of the gospel. All these charges up against us, taken away, and we go free. How'd that happen? Well, Colossians chapter 2, we studied this a few months back, says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. These words, Paul's describing the the decrees and righteous standards and demands of a law against us, right? The decrees is what what he calls even here the, the decrees against us, right? The commandments that come in the Scriptures. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honor your father and mother. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. All of these sorts of laws, they come against us and they stand condemning and they just stack up and 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 stack up. And these decrees give us no power to accomplish them. They merely point out we're wrong. They give us no commendation. They only condemn. And the condemnation comes so hard, comes hard upon us, and the law does its work in our souls. And so at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, we stand before God. We have a debt of sin just far beyond our ability to pay. But then the good news comes, as it says here in Colossians 3.14. In Jesus Christ, through the work, He took Him away. So it's the prosecuting attorney. Picture it now. We're standing before the throne of God. Jesus Christ takes all of this, sins away. And Colossians 2, verse 14 says, what did He do with these things? He nailed them to the cross. That's where they were paid for. On the cross of Christ. Satan stands up. His angels stand up trying to accuse us before the Father, before the judge. And God the Father says, okay, which of you convict this believer here of sin? And with that debt nailed to the cross, any accuser, Satan and his angels, have to say, we have no charges to press, Your Honor. And then God the Father slams his gavel upon the bench and says, not guilty. That's justification. Justification is God making the declaration, not guilty. Now, some have defined justification this way. They said, justification, just as if I never sinned. Now, there's truth to that. Uh, it's It's not all bad. Because when we are justified, we stand before God completely innocent. And we are innocent to the extent even as much as if we never sinned, we would be innocent before the Father. But that's not the entire story of justification because in justification, it's not just that our our sins are are forgotten. It's not just that we are like we're pure, perfect. It's... I say this. It's not that we become righteous in our actions. Rather, justification acknowledges the sin, but declares that the sin is forgiven. That's what justification is. Though there is sin, it's wiped away. It's no longer owed to our account. God will go elsewhere to get the payment He demands, and He does that at the cross of Christ for those who believe. And that's what Paul wants of Philemon. Don't go to Onesimus for the payment of the wrongs he's committed. You come to me. I'll take care of your bill. Then the third picture comes here in verse 19. This is how God handles the bill. It's how Paul handles the bill. It's the the backside of justification. It's called redemption in verse 19. Paul says this, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. At this point, we leave the legal world of justification... And we enter into the marketplace of redemption. 
Paul's going to talk about how the payment's going to be made. And Paul basically puts down his guarantee to make the payment. He guarantees the redemption price for Onesimus. Paul was going to pay the price. He even signed his name. Verse 19, that's the point. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. This has become my signature on a legal note. I'm going to repay. I remember going to the closing of our house here in Rockford. Before we lived here in Rockford, we lived in DeKalb. And um, before we, uh, we actually moved up here to purchase our house, we talked with some banks down in DeKalb, got our financial details together, and the bank in DeKalb issued us a cashier's check. Now, those of you in the legal world, Phil, you know what all this is about, but I've only been through this twice. I've bought two houses, one in DeKalb and now one up here in Rockford. But in effect, this cashier check then became a guarantee that we had enough money to purchase the home. The check wasn't going to bounce. In fact, if it did bounce or there was any problems with this cashier's check, they weren't supposed to go to me. They're supposed to go to the bank because the bank was guaranteeing that this was enough to repay. That's what a cashier's check was. And that's what Philemon is saying. That's what Paul is saying to Philemon. Here, I've got a cashier's check. I guarantee you I'm going to repay this. It's blank. You fill out the amount of the wrong that Onesimus caused you, and I guarantee it for you. I will come up with the funds. If for whatever reason payment can't be made, don't go after Onesimus. Go after me. Because I'm the one paying the redemption price. I'm taking full responsibility for the injustices he's done. I've signed my name to this letter, and I will repay it. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the parallels here are amazing. Jesus paid for our sins. We're held captive by our sins, but Jesus paid the ransom price. He's redeemed us, right? And this is all over Scripture again. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law. Paying them out, right? Paying the price, redeeming them. Titus 2.14, Christ Jesus gave Himself for us. There was the price that He might redeem us from every lawless deed. Before Jesus was nailed to the cross, He anticipated His work. Mark 10.45, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. After the cross, Jesus explained His work in the same way. Thus it's written that Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Forgiveness of sins. We are freed from them. We have been redeemed from them. In eternity, the worship will be forever of the slaughtered Lamb who purchased redemption for His people. Revelation 5.9 Worthy are You, O Lord, to take the book and to break its seals, for You were slain and You purchased for God with Your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Redemption. Jesus Christ purchased us with His blood so all the debt, Jesus Christ paid for that. You know, in the marketplace, everything has its price. Apples go for a little more than a dollar a pound. You can buy a couple oranges for a buck. Two dollars will get you a gallon of milk. A couple hundred dollars gets you a nice digital camera. A thousand dollars gets you a nice computer. Now, for sin, the price is death. The wages of sin is death. And when someone sins, there needs to be a death to atone for that sins, for that sin. Hebrews 9.22, According to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's sin, there needs to be shedding of blood. And Jesus Christ, dying upon the cross, paid that blood price. And in paying the price, He set the captives free. 1 Peter 1. 18 and 19. You are not redeemed with perishable things with like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And I say that the blood of Christ ought to be precious to you. Apart from the blood of Christ, we're enslaved to our sin. Apart from the blood of Christ, we're under the wrath of God. Apart from the blood of Christ, we'll spend a Christless Eternity in endless punishment. But the blood of Christ spilt on the cross changes it. Now we're free and our freedom comes with great cost. Picture yourself, an American soldier in Iraq. One day your Humvees ambushed 
by some militant Iraqis. And they take you off. And they take you into a room. And they put a video camera in your face. And they say, plead for your captors to give us the ransom money. And you speak forth this spiel into a, into a camera. He says, they've held us hostage. And the ransom price needs to pay. Or they said, we're gonna, they're going to kill us. At that point, what's your hope? What's your hope? You have only one hope, that someone's going to actually pay that ransom, satisfy your captors, and you get free. That's parallel to the state of our souls before Christ. We've been held hostage under the grip of sin and Satan. The ransom price needs to be paid for us to be set free. And the good news is that Jesus paid the ransom. We simply need to believe and trust it, and we're free. The cost is great. It may cost the life of Jesus. He purchased the church with his own blood. But that's redemption. And that's what Philemon, what Paul was willing to play, pay Philemon. I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then I love verse 19 how he tries to get out of it. He says, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Trying to get out of it somehow. Trying to say, okay, Philemon, you just... Forgive me. The parallels, obviously, between Christ and us break down at that point. But that's what Paul said. Well, there are three pictures of the cross. Substitution, justification, redemption. Now let's look at the fourth, reconciliation. For this, I want to go back to verse 16. We're moving from the marketplace to the home. We're dealing from costs and dollars and we're dealing now with relationships, reconciliation. Verse 16, Paul speaks of how Philemon would now have Onesimus back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and to the Lord. With these words, Paul's putting forth the idea into Philemon's mind of reconciliation that the cross brings. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. But in coming to faith, Onesimus become, as Paul said here, more than a slave. He became a beloved brother. You know, that's the great reality of Christianity. Is it certainly each of us have a different role. We stand differently in society. Some are young, some are old, some are rich, some are poor. Some hold positions of prominence and authority and leadership and some just don't have position of leadership in life or different nationalities. But here it is, the cross of Christ, we're all family. We are, as it says here, brother. We are sisters and brothers in Christ. The Bible frequently uses that term. In fact, even here in Philemon, four different times, Paul uses this term of, of familial um, relationship to describe what takes place. In verse 1, Timothy's our brother. Verse 2, Aphia is her sister. In verse 20, Philemon's brother. And here in verse 16, we see uh, Onesimus being a brother. That is a church. The church is a family. We are called, 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God. So the church is. It's a greater family. And the reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon, really, this is the theme of the whole book of, of Philemon. Onesimus sinned against him and was estranged from him. But now Paul's goal in the letter is to bring them back, right? To reconcile them together. But again, it's the thrust of my message this morning. I want to take this and really apply it to our salvation in Christ. Just as Onesimus and Philemon were at odds with each other, Paul is trying to bring them back to be reconciled to each other. So also we are at odds with God and the purpose of the Scripture in Christ is to call us to be reconciled to God. And indeed, through Christ Jesus, we are reconciled with God the Father. So that Jesus Christ, John 15, might even call us friends. In other portions of Scripture, we're called the children of God. Now, the Bible speaks about this reconciliation in many ways. Oftentimes, it uses this word, reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 18 and 19 says this, that God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
not counting their trespasses against him. And this is, this is the fruit of, of justification and redemption is that the, the, the trespasses are gone. He doesn't count them anymore. He brings us into relationship with him. Whereas once we're at enmity with God, now we have peace with God. Romans 5.10, if while we were sinners, if while we were enemies, Romans 5.10 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having now be, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. He takes enemies and reconciles us through faith in Christ. We sang last week at the Lord's Supper, once your enemy now seated at your table. That's reconciliation. Reconciliation takes place when hostile parties are brought near to each other in the family of God. Now, the Bible also speaks not just of reconciliation, but also speaks even of others. Adoption. That's taking a a child from outside the family, bringing him or her into the family. Romans 8.15 You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Believers in Christ are adopted into the family of God. We become children of God. And as children, we now can address God as Daddy. That's what Abba means. By which we cry out, Abba, Father. Um, right, that, that song we sing sometimes, right? You're my friend and you are my brother, even though you are a king, right? And I'm not denying the lordship of Christ. I'm not denying that God should be on the throne, Jake, like you talked in Romans, or Psalm 9, Psalm 8. But listen, he is high and exhausted, exalted, but he's also, our, he's, he's also our daddy. God is. Intimate relationship, we have access to our Lord. I mean, think about the intimacy of a child with a father. How much different that is than intimacy with a stranger. You know, I, I think about my three-and-a-half-year-old. There are times when I set her on my lap and her face is like two inches from mine. And she's combing through my hair and looking all at my hair and pointing out all of my blemishes in my face. Oh, Daddy has an owie. You know, he's got pointing out some kind of some kind of mark on your face or whatever. And pretty soon she's opening my mouth. And she's putting her fingers in my mouth and saying, oh, where's your tongue? Boy, your teeth and start counting teeth or kind of doing whatever, you know, and starts taking her finger and sticking it in my nose. That's intimacy that we have as sons. That's relationship. That's reconciliation. And I remember doing that with my father. We'd sit on his lap. We played this kind of game. We'd press on his nose. And dad would say, ding dong. And we'd pry open his mouth. And he'd say, hello. And then we'd shout in his mouth, anybody there? And we'd have this conversation down his throat, down his mouth. That's what we do. But what that does is that gives you a slight taste of what intimacy is and access is in reconciliation to an Abba, to a Daddy. And as children of God, we have access to His throne by the blood of Jesus. The writer Hebrews outlines the implications well. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We can come to our God as a, as a daddy because we've been completely reconciled in Christ because we are His children. And we can feel no fear and feel comfort and love right there in that relationship. And that ought to blow your mind. That we mortals can become part of the family of God. That's the thrust of 1 John 3.1. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called... Children of God. How can we be called children of God? But we are. Such we are. And that's what it means to be reconciled to God. 
It means we're now on intimate terms with Him. There's no barrier between us and God. We've been adopted in His family. We can come to Him in full assurance of faith. So Paul wanted with Philemon to have a complete reconciliation there with he and Onesimus. Because that's what we have with God. Well, we've seen four pictures of the cross. We've seen substitution. We've seen justification. We've seen redemption. We've seen reconciliation. You know, and each of these really give us an image of the cross which helped to give us a, an entire picture of what took place in our lives when Christ died on Calvary. Would you take one of these? And redemption isn't quite everything. If you take the picture of um, justification, it's not quite everything. You look at substitution, it doesn't quite explain everything. Reconciliation doesn't explain everything, but you put them all together and you help see a picture of full... 3D, what the cross is all about. Well, before we close our service this morning, right, there's one more picture of the cross that we need to see. It's not in our text this morning. Rather, it's the Lord's Supper. Throughout Lent, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper every week. And we're about to do that now in a little bit. But I want to show you that in many ways, the Lord's Supper pictures the cross as well. If you do a little bit of thinking... Each of these pictures in my message this morning present the symbolism in the elements. And the Lord's Supper teaches substitution. The Lord's Supper teaches justification. The Lord's Supper teaches redemption. The Lord's Supper teaches reconciliation. I mean, think about this. When Jesus was with His disciples and He had the bread, He said, This is My body which is given for you. My body for you. In your place. Substitution language. The whole context of the Last Supper was celebration of the Passover. It was the time each year that Israel would gather their families together to, to celebrate their deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And the whole Passover Seder meal... By the way, if you've never been to a Seder meal, we're going to do one on Saturday... April 7th. And, and if, you, if you go to a Seder meal and just see what it's about, it will revolutionize your picture of what the Lord's Supper is. So I encourage you to... If you've never been, make that a priority. On April 7th, from 4 to 6, we're going to have just kind of potluck dinner here together. We're going to take out a, a Jewish Haggadah. It, I didn't Christianize it at all. I said, this is what the, the Jewish people go through today. We're going to go through, read the same stories they read, and you will be shocked at how clearly that points to Christ and how much the parallels are between that and the Lord's Supper, and will illumine the Lord's Supper. But the Last Supper is a whole picture of freedom and redemption. I mean, the whole context of why they got together, why they gathered for the Passover, is because to commemorate and remember Israel being freed from their bondage and being redeemed out of their bondage and set free. That's the redemption of it. In fact, even in Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, when He took the cup, He said, Drink from it, all of you. This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the blood poured out for forgiveness of sins. It's the price for forgiveness. It's also the redemption of sins, the buying out. It's all symbolized there in the cup. In fact, it is interesting in the Passover meal, there's, they, they drink several cups of wine. And um, one of them is called the cup of redemption. It's probably the cup that Jesus spoke these words about right before they, they left. Well, reconciliation also in the Lord's Supper as well. When Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, He's talking to people who knew the Bible. New covenant. Oh, Jeremiah 31. That's what he's talking about. Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. The new covenant was made at the Last Supper. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But... This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, 
and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Is that reconciliation? It absolutely is. Right? Coming together. He is our God. We are His people. Coming together, reconciled. In fact, that intimacy is so great. Verse 34, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We have the law of God written on our hearts. We will know it. We'll be reconciled to God. We'll know what He thinks. There'll be complete reconciliation there. And so as we celebrate the supper this morning, let us see the cross for all that it is. It is substitution. It is justification. It is redemption. It is reconciliation. We see Paul modeling this before Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. You know, we're called to do that as well. To the extent that we can imitate Christ in substitution, we ought to do that. Whenever we can take the hit for somebody else, we ought to do that. Justification, whenever we can pay a debt for somebody else, we ought to pay the debt. Redemption, to what extent we can forgive, love covers a multitude of sins, we ought to, we ought to forgive and redeem people. To the extent that we can be reconciled, we need to be reconciled, be at peace with all men. I mean, these are things that Paul did, but in a greater sense, that's what Jesus did for us at the cross. So let's pray. And Lord, I think as we close our service this morning, celebrating the Lord's Supper, I pray that You'd bring to remembrance all these pictures of the cross. Lord, that we would realize that we stand forgiven at the cross only because You took our place as a substitute. We are not righteous people, Lord. We don't come before You because we're so holy and right. But we come before You because You've justified us. You've declared us righteous. And You've redeemed us. You've purchased us. You've bought us. You've called us out of darkness into light. You've paid the price for our sins at Calvary. It's because of the cross, Lord, that we are even reconciled to You. And so I pray, Lord, as we think about the cross, as we think about Jesus and what He did there, I pray at this time, as we, as we take this bread and we drink this cup, may it be just another picture to, to draw us to think about the mighty cross of Christ. Lord, we love you. I pray you'd enlarge your vision of what Christ did for us at Calvary. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a couple instructions before the, the men come. First of all, this the Lord's Supper here is for believers in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, just let the cup pass. Let the bread pass. It's not for you. It's for those who've experienced the redemption, the justification, the reconciliation that's described here. Also, there's a way to take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. If you're harboring sin in your heart, unconfessed sin, don't take it. You'll have a chance next week again. But just let it pass as well. But if that's you and you are harboring sin, here's what I would tell you to do. I, I would call you to cry out to the Lord and say, God, God, help me to see. Help me to hate my sin. Oh, who will deliver me from this wretched body? It's only Jesus Christ who will. God, and I pray you'd help me in these matters. So we're going to have the men. They're just going to pass out the bread and pass out the cup and you can, you can hold it in their hands. Um, first off, is Yvonne going to go first? Okay. Jake's going to have a song for us to sing to reflect upon uh, the cross of Christ. Well, we've been asked to uh, to sing No Greater Love once more. So grab the insert again, and we will remind ourselves... You love me
so unlovely. You sought me when I was lost. You showed me how much you really loved me when you bought me at the highest cost. There's no greater love than this. There's no greater love than this. That a man would give his life for a friend. There's no higher sacrifice that the Son would give his life. You have paid a precious price for me you chose me when I was so unworthy you cleansed me with your own blood you clothed me with righteousness and mercy and you crown me with your steadfast love. There's no greater love than this. There's no greater love than this. That a man would give his life for a friend. There's no higher sacrifice. That the Son would give His life You have paid a precious price for me You have paid You have paid a precious price for me have the men go ahead and distribute the bread. It's going to be an instrumental. <laughs> 